you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. This has been a humbling week for me and the foster household. We, we had our first full week of Parker going to preschool and Josiah going to in-person first grade. I don't know what I expected, but uh, for both of them, when we got to drop-off time, they just ran away from us. There wasn't the first tear shed. There wasn't like a look back of lamentation and sadness. They just booked it right inside. The the first day of Josiah's uh, first grade, we go to pick him up and uh, he's running in the car and and we ask how the day was before he's even in. He goes, it's boring, uh, with the principal standing right behind him. She heard it and laughed. But then he got in the car, he said, it's boring, but it's way better than you and mom teaching. (laughs) I will concede that homeschooled kindergarten was terrible. It was... It was not a good thing. So I have been humbled this week. And so I'm going to ask you to actually answer a question. And you won't hurt my feelings because I'm very humble and lowly today. Where are you most connected to the presence of God? Don't feel like you have to give the, like, the Jesus-y, jukey answer. Like, where are you actually the most connected to the presence of God? Nature? Where else? Okay, in bed. In the morning. morning. Others. Okay. Others. One more time. Garden. Okay. Singing. We all have these different places where we experience the presence of God, right? I have two polar opposite, most experienced God's presence. For me, the table is the, the climactic act of, act of worship. And you would expect me to say that, right? This is, this is what a pastor you would think would say. But the other one is at my sewing machine. It used to be my woodworking shop, but we don't have a garage anymore, so I've taken up sewing during pandemic. And it, it is this place where I can do nothing else but focus on the task at hand. And God has met me in some particularly powerful ways sitting at that table making clothes for my family. You can experience God in uh, daily prayer. You can experience God in your car. You can experience God as you watch your kid grow up and go out in the strength of the Spirit to go and do things on their own. You can watch, uh, you can experience God as your daughter gets up and sings a beautiful song in front of her family. You can experience God in all these different ways and know God's closeness, right? But that hasn't always been the case. The scriptures start with humanity and God dwelling together in the garden. This is this uh, direct access to God. There seems to be like a standing evening meeting. They're going to gather after the the sun is beginning to set and the garden is cool. And they're going to delight in one another. Even after uh, the fall, God goes looking for them and finds them in their shame and in their nakedness hiding from God. In those next bit of the stories, he casts them out of Eden and puts this cherubim with a flaming sword separating them from the garden. 
And from, from then on, there seems to be this constant struggle of how humanity and God can be near each other, how humanity can experience God's presence. For the first parts of the stories, we, we seem to see that God comes in special moments to certain people, but doesn't really uh, open himself up to the whole of the community. He'll go and appear to Abraham or to Moses, or he'll wrestle with Jacob. You'll have these theophany, these God appearances that are uh, in some particular uh, moment in time, and usually in some uh, weird way. That's a visitor or a messenger. Uh, if you're lucky to be Moses, it's in a giant storm cloud on the top of a mountain where if you don't cover your face, like, things are bad. But the everyday ordinary Israelite had no access to the, to the divine. We, we see them uh, eventually wandering in the wilderness. They get the law, and God says, we're going we're gonna to find a way for you to be able to access me. And he gives them uh, these, like, 18 long chapters uh, about how to build a tabernacle, uh, like, down to what stones are going to go where and what type of wood each pole will be made out of, what materials can be woven this way, and then they retell it again as the, the construction people build it. It's like another 18 chapters. Okay, we're going to use this wood and we're going to do this thing. So God said it and we did it. And so they have this mobile access to the presence of the divine. Wherever Israel wanders, the tabernacle is in their midst. God's presence is in the tabernacle and above the tabernacle. Wherever it goes, he leads the way and provides light and life. And the, the uh, inner parts of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant carrying the uh, the, the stone tablets that Moses received the law on, the, the manna from the wilderness, and Aaron's staff. And God goes with the people. Eventually, we begin to see Israel settling in. They're nomadic, no longer a nomadic people group. They have got their land, and they have a monarchy. There's some uh, sketchy bits where they seem to lose the ark, and other people steal it from them. We're not quite sure how this actually plays out, because this should really be the thing you protect. Uh, but eventually, David says, I'm going to build you a temple, God. And he goes, no, actually you're not. Who asked you to build a temple? And uh, tells that story that we heard a couple weeks ago about how he was going to make them a temple. He was going to make them an everlasting kingdom. The, the line of David would have no end, and his son would build the physical temple. Uh, we, we kind of jump from last week's text of Solomon asking for wisdom to this week's text where the temple is just built. In between is the story of it happening and what, what it looks like and all the process that goes into it. But we can jump from God dwells in a tabernacle that is mobile to God now dwells in a temple that is fixed. This is what you do if you live in the ancient Near East and you worship a deity. You build a temple. We see this back uh, even with Abraham as he builds an altar in the wilderness. We see this uh, at each turn, they build some memorial to their God. And then finally, once they're settled, we need a temple that is grand. If we are truly Yahweh's people, we need something that is better than any temple for Marduk or for Baal or for Asherah. We need the temple of temples. And Solomon does not disappoint. This is a grand wonder of the world where people from nations look around and go, look at the opulence of this temple for this Yahweh, this God of the Hebrew people. And we come to today's text where it's dedicated and God's presence fills the temple and Solomon prays, may this be a blessing for those who are sick and those who are sinners. 
May the foreigner come nearby and and even stand outside and offer prayers to God and be blessed. This should be a good thing, right? They've got this grand building and God is there. But the problem is how we got to this grand building. Uh, This building is built on the back of political maneuvering and slavery. Solomon conscripts the people of Israel to to build for years and years and years, to build this temple. And oh, while you're at it, this palace that David built is not good enough for me. So we're going to build another palace that is resplendent, is beautiful, and we're going to take like a decade to do this. This becomes Solomon's defining uh, event is the enslavement of his people. When he dies, the, the nation is in uproar and, and the king that is to replace him uh, is, is trying to decide how can I uh, continue in my father's legacy. And so he, he uh, wants to build more because you know, I've heard that every church needs a building campaign. Well, apparently every generation of Hebrew needs uh, a building campaign too. And so he goes to the elders and he says, how should we do this? And they say, don't be like Solomon. Don't enslave your people. Offer a light burden, and this will be good. And then he goes to his friends. As friends have often do, they get him in trouble and say, they're going to think you're weak if you do like your father. If Solomon made them work this hard, you make them work harder. And so instead of listening to the wisdom of the ages, he listens to the words of his friends and conscripts Israel into even harder work. And this begins the fracturing of God's people. The, the nation tears apart into two, a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. We have rival kings who are both pretty rotten, but who have different opinions and different crowds who like them. And, and from this moment on, it doesn't matter that this temple is there, for the promises of God already begin to unwind. We'll be a nation and we'll be a people. We will have peace and we will prosper. Now they are fractured and fighting and hurting. And ultimately, it, it climaxes in their exile, first the northern kingdom to Assyria and then the southern kingdom to Babylon. The temple is ransacked. God's presence is described in Ezekiel as leaving the temple and disappearing The prophets call Israel back and say, if only, if only you had been faithful. And in many ways, this is a call to the king for whatever the king does, Israel does. If the king is good, Israel seems to be good. And if the king is rotten, the king is idolatrous. If the king uh, seeks their own glory, so goes Israel. And eventually they're told, just settle in exile. A generation is going to pass. 70 years, you're going to be out here, and then I'll bring a remnant back. They, they no longer have God's presence. They no longer have their land. They no longer are a nation. Sit and wait. And eventually, God's promises do come true. And under the the reign of the Persian Empire, they're invited to come back and even bring some of the accoutrement of the temple out of uh, Persia's storage. 
They're going to give some wealth to help rebuild the temple. And they get there and they, they rebuild and they have this whole plan of how they're going like, to defend the work. They're going to have some people be soldiers. You're going to work with one hand and, uh, and guard it with the other. And this temple that they build is a disappointment. Because for them, Solomon's temple was the picture of three days. And this temple that is built is piddly and sad. And God's presence doesn't even seem to be there. And then the text We have uh, some history and some uh, text and broader tradition that give us a picture of the 400 years in between as Israel seeks to be a nation and seeks to come back to God's promises. We hear the stories of the rise of the Hasmoneans and the Greeks and eventually the rise of the Roman Empire. During this time, we see the move away from the synagogue or the way from the temple to the synagogue. We see people settled in and stayed away from Israel. We see the rise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots. Essenes and these different groups who are seeking to return glory to Israel, to get God to once again come to the temple and to dwell there. They all have different strategies. The Pharisees, these uh, active lay leaders, think if we can all just follow the rules really well, God will come back. The Sadducees are kind of the more liberal progressive wing of the church. And they're like, well, let's not get too bogged down in theology. Let's just, um, let's just make sure nobody messes up over here. And the Essenes are like, well, the only way for God to come back and really to, to dwell in our midst is we actually need to leave and go kind of dwell in the desert. We need to pull ourselves away from the world. The Zealots think, well, war tends to be a good idea. Let's get our swords and our sticks and let's go beat the Romans if we have to. And they long to be in the presence of God. The last time they were sure of God's presence was at the dedication of the temple. And now we're some 450 years later. Where is God? God shows up in a way that is wholly unexpected. Instead of a king who looks like David or Solomon, he shows up in the person of Christ. Instead of dwelling with the people in a storm cloud in the temple, he dwells with a group of ragtag rabbi school dropouts. Instead of taking a throne full of gold and weapons and, uh, and power, he gets dusty walking the trails of Galilee and going to the sea of looking for those that are hurting. Christ sees the temple as just another sign of the people's idolatry and failure to truly worship God, to truly orient their hearts towards him and to care for other people. And so he invites a whole new way to access the presence of God. No longer do you temple, but God comes to you. He is going to go throughout Israel telling the least and the lost. He's going to go to the tax collectors and to the sinners. This is like going to the the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee. It's like going to the polar extremes and saying, all of you come and eat with me. He goes to the sexual minorities and to the women. He goes to the enslaved. He goes to the Romans and says, come to me and I will show you the Father. I will give you this bread of life. I will give you the Spirit of God. When I go away, you will get something more. You'll get the very presence of God dwelling with you. 
We no longer have to go make a pilgrimage to the temple to offer sacrifice for Christ himself offered a sacrifice for us. We no longer have to wonder where can we find God for God has already found us. Before we were ever aware of our need for him, God's presence went before us and his grace was provenient and ahead of us. In the depths of our despair and the heights of our joy, Christ's spirit has been there for us. At times it's hard to feel, at times it's hard to see, and sometimes those places that have been the place where we connect with the Spirit of God don't do it anymore. Sometimes we maybe found God in nature, and all of a sudden we go out, and and no matter what we do, we can't seem to, to find God, and yet He is still there and still desiring to offer grace to to lavish you with love and there's nothing you have to do to receive it other than saying, here I am, Lord. The gospel of Solomon was good news built on the back of slavery and, and oppression. The good news of Christ is that the dividing walls have been torn down. It is no longer good news if it's not good news for everybody. The, the boundaries of who is in the kingdom are pushed out beyond the margin so that those who have been marginalized are now part of God's kingdom. This kingdom that knows no end and that now you and I are part of taking to the ends of the earth with the presence of God dwelling in us and with us. We get to go out and go beyond. We don't contain the presence of God to this room, right? Uh, we, we didn't even talk about it primarily as the place where we encounter God. It's but one place, and it's absolutely critical to gather for worship. I think it's absolutely critical to come and encounter the grace of God and the bread and cup. But friends, we then take that spirit of God out with us and bring heaven to earth wherever we go whether it's your corporate office or caring for your grandkids, whether it's in uh, your sales meeting or at your family reunion, we go and we mediate the presence of God wherever we are. You don't have to look for him and you can bring him to other people. Friends, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been set free from slavery to sin and death and we don't have to look any farther for where our God is. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, even in those moments where we uh, feel like we can't find you, we know that you are there. In those moments of uh, sorrow and weariness, in those moments of grief and lamentation, help us know your presence. Abide with us as we abide with you. In those moments of joy and good where it's easy to experience your presence, send us out in mission to declare that your kingdom is at hand and that your love knows no bounds. Lord, we thank you that we live in a time where we don't have to wonder. We don't have to go and find you. You have come and found us. Lord, fill us with your spirit and send us out in love. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and by the power of his ever-present spirit. Amen. Amen.